Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I want to thank you for listening. We have on the site over 3,400 audios featuring preachers and persecution stories from North Korea and other places, Bible studies. You can go to Google Play Store and Apple Store and download the Church One app for sermon audio. Just enter Hackberry House. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.falconer.com. Dot 72 at gmail.com. Reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. I think most of you know who Charles Spurgeon is, was, the uh, preacher from England, the uh, evangelical pastor and writer. He died in 1892. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman and known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from Volume 2, Number 75. It's entitled Final Perseverance, and I must say up front, these are Charles Spurgeon's ideas. I think I agree with much of it. This is his way of explaining a very troublesome passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It reads like this, For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. There are some spots in Europe which have been the scenes of frequent warfare. As, for instance, the the Kingdom of Belgium, which might be called the battlefield of Europe. War has raged over the whole of Europe, but in some unhappy spots, battle after battle has been fought. And so there is scarcely a passage of Scripture which has not been disputed between the enemies of truth and the upholders of it. But this passage, with one or two others, has been the special subject of attack. This is one of the texts which have been trod under the feet of controversy, and there are opinions upon it as adverse as the poles, uh, some asserting that it means one thing and some declaring that it means another. We think that some of them approach uh, somewhat near the truth, but others of them desperately err from the mind of the Spirit. So we come to this passage with the intention to read it with the simplicity of a child and whatever we find therein, uh, to state it. And if it may not seem to agree with something we have hitherto held, we are prepared to cast away every doctrine of our own rather than one passage of Scripture. Looking at the scope of the whole passage, it appears to us that the Apostle wished to push the disciples on. There is a tendency in the human mind to stop short of the heavenly mark. As soon as ever we have attained to the first principles of religion, have passed through baptism and understand the resurrection of the dead, there is a tendency in us to sit still, to say, I have passed from death unto life, here I may take my stand and rest. Whereas the Christian life was intended not to be a, a sitting still, but a race, a perpetual motion. 
The apostle, therefore, endeavors to urge the disciples forward and make them run with diligence the heavenly race, looking unto Jesus. He tells them that it is not enough to have, on a certain day, passed through a glorious change, to have experienced at a certain time a a wonderful operation of the Spirit, but he teaches them it is absolutely necessary that they should have the Spirit all their lives, that they should, as long as they live, be progressing in the truth of God. In order to make them persevere, if possible, he shows them that if they do not, they must most certainly be lost. For there is no other salvation but that which God has already bestowed on them. And if that does not keep them, carry them forward, and present them spotless before God, there cannot be any other. For it is impossible, he says, if you're once enlightened and then fall away, that you should ever be renewed again unto repentance. So we shall this morning answer one or two questions. Now the first question will be, who are the people here spoken of? Are they true Christians or not? Secondly, what is meant by falling away? And thirdly, what is intended when it is asserted that it is impossible to renew them to repentance? Well, first then we answer the question, who are the people here spoken of? If you read Dr. Gill, Dr. Owen, almost all the eminent Calvinistic writers, they, all of them, assert that these persons are not Christians. They say that enough is said here to represent a man who is a Christian externally, but not enough to give the portrait of a true believer. Now, it strikes me they would not have said this if they had not had some doctrine to uphold. For a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by it must be Christians. If the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see that he could have used more explicit terms than they are right here. How can a man be said to be enlightened and to taste of the heavenly gift and to be made partaker of the Holy Ghost without being a child of God? With all deference to these learned doctors, and I admire and love them all, I humbly conceive that they allowed their judgments to be a little warped when they said that. And I think I shall be able to show that none but true believers are here described. First, they are spoken of as having been once enlightened. This refers to the enlightening influence of God's Spirit poured into the soul at the time of conviction when man is enlightened with the regard to his spiritual state, shown how evil and bitter a thing it is to sin against God, made to feel how utterly powerless he is to rise from the grave of his corruption and is further enlightened to see that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh living be justified and to behold Christ on the cross as the sinner's only hope. The first work of grace is to enlighten the soul. By nature, we are entirely dark. The spirit, like a lamp, sheds light into the dark heart, revealing its corruption, displaying its sad state of destitution, and in due time, revealing also Jesus Christ, so that in his light we may see light. I cannot consider a man truly enlightened unless he is a child of God, 
Does not the term indicate a person taught of God? It is not the whole of Christian experience, but is it not a part? Having enlightened us, as the text says, the next thing that God grants to us is a taste of the heavenly gift by which we understand the heavenly gift of salvation, including the pardon of sin, justification by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, regeneration by the Holy Ghost, and all those gifts and graces in which the earlier dawn of spiritual life convey salvation. All true believers have tasted of the heavenly gift. It is not enough for a man to be enlightened. The light may glare upon his eyeballs, and and yet he may die. He must taste as well as see that the Lord is good. It's not enough to say that I am corrupt. I must taste that Christ is able to remove my corruption. It's not enough for me to know that he is the only Savior. I must taste of his flesh and of his blood and have a vital union with him. We do think that when a man has been enlightened and has had an experience of grace, He is a Christian, and uh, whatever those great divines might hold, we cannot think that the Holy Spirit would describe an unregenerate man as having been enlightened and as having tasted of the heavenly gift. No, no, my brethren, if I have tasted of the heavenly gift, then that heavenly gift is mine. If I have had ever so short an experience of my Savior's love, I am one of His. If he has brought me into the green pastures and made me taste of the still waters and the tender grass, I need not fear as to whether I am really a child of God. Then the apostle gives a further description, a higher state of grace, sanctification by participation of the Holy Ghost. It is a peculiar privilege to believers, after their first tasting of the heavenly gift, to be made partakers of of the Holy Ghost. He is an unindwelling spirit. He dwells in the hearts and souls and minds of men. He makes this mortal flesh his home. He makes our soul his palace, and there he rests. And we do assert, and we think on the authority of Scripture, that no man can be a partaker of the Holy Ghost and yet be unregenerate. Where the Holy Ghost dwells, there must be life. And if I have participation with the Holy Ghost and fellowship with Him, then I may rest assured that my salvation has been purchased by the blood of the Savior. You need not fear, beloved, if you have the Holy Ghost. You have that which ensures your salvation. If you, by an inward communion, can participate in His Spirit, And if by a perpetual indwelling the Holy Ghost rests in you, you are not only a Christian, but you have arrived at some maturity in and by grace. You've gone beyond mere enlightenment. You've passed from the bare taste. You have attained to a positive feast and a partaking of the Holy Ghost. Lest there should be any mistake, however, about the persons being children of God, the apostle goes to a further stage of grace. They have tasted the good word of God. Now, I will venture to say there are some good Christian people here who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have never tasted the good word of God. Now, I mean by that that they are really converted. They've tasted the heavenly gift, but have not grown so strong in grace 
as to know the sweetness, the richness, and the fatness of the very word that saves them. They have been saved by the word, but they have not yet come to realize and love and feed upon the word as many others have. It is one thing for God to work a grace in the soul. It's quite another thing for God to show us that work of grace. It's one thing for the word to work in us. It's another thing for us really and habitually to relish and taste and rejoice in that word. Some of my hearers are true Christians, but they have not got to that stage wherein they can love election and suck it down as a sweet morsel, wherein they can take the great doctrines of grace and feed upon them. But these people had. They had tasted the good word of God as well as received the good gift. They had attained to such a state that they had loved the word, had tasted and feasted upon it. It was the man of their right hand. They had counted it sweeter than honey, aye, sweeter than the droppings of the honeycomb. They had tasted the good word of God. I say again, if these people be not believers, who are? And they had gone further still. They had attained the summit of piety. They had received the powers of the world to come. Not miraculous gifts, which are denied us, he says. This is Spurgeon speaking in these days. I don't. I believe miraculous gifts are still available. Spurgeon did not. But all those powers with which the Holy Ghost endows a Christian. And what are they? Why, there's the power of faith, which commands even the heavens themselves to reign, and they reign, or stop the bottles of heaven that they reign not. There's the power of prayer, which puts a ladder between earth and heaven and bids angels walk up and down to convey our wants to God and bring down blessings from above. There's the power with which God girds his servant when he speaks by inspiration, which enables him to instruct others and lead them to Jesus. And whatever other power there may be, the power of holding communion with God or the power of patiently waiting for the Son of Man, they were possessed by these individuals. They were not simply children, but they were men. They were not merely alive, but they were endued with power. They were men whose muscles were firmly set, whose bones were strong. They had become giants in grace and had received not only the light, but the power also of the world to come. These, we say, whatever may be the meaning of the text, must have been, beyond a doubt, none other than true and real Christians. Number two, now we answer the second question, what is meant by falling away? We must remind our friends that there's a vast distinction between falling away and falling. It's nowhere said in Scripture that if a man fall, he cannot be renewed. On the contrary, the righteous fall seven times, but he rises up again. And however many times the child of God does fall, the Lord still holds the righteous. Yea, when our bones are broken, he binds up our bones again and sets us once more upon a rock. He says, Return, you backsliding children of men, for I am married unto you. And if the Christian do backslide ever so far, still almighty mercy cries, Return, 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 and seek an injured father's heart. He still calls his children back again, falling 
is not falling away. Let me explain the difference. For a man who falls may behave just like a man who falls away. And yet there's a great distinction between the two. I can use no better illustration than the distinction between fainting and dying. There lies a young creature. She can scarcely breathe. She cannot herself lift up her hand, and if lifted up by anyone else, it falls. She's cold and stiff. She's faint, but not dead. Here's another one just as cold and and stiff as she is, but there is this difference. She is dead. The Christian may faint and and may fall down in a faint too, and, and some may pick him up and say he's dead, but he is not. If he falls, God will lift him up again. But if he falls away, God himself cannot save him. For it is impossible, if the righteous fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. Moreover, to fall away is not to commit sin under a a temporary surprise and temptation. Abraham goes to Egypt. He is afraid that his wife will be taken away from him, and he says, She is my sister. Well, that was a a sin under a temporary surprise, a sin of which by and by he repented and God forgave him. Now that is falling, but it is not falling away. Even Noah might commit a sin which has degraded his memory even till now and shall disgrace it to the latest time. But, But doubtless, Noah repented and was saved by sovereign grace. Noah fell. But Noah did not fall away. A Christian may go astray once and speedily return again. And though it is a sad and and woeful and evil thing to be surprised into a sin, yet there is a great difference between this and a sin which would be occasioned by a total falling away from grace. Nor can a man who commits a sin which is not exactly a surprise be said to fall away. I believe that some Christian men God forbid that we should say much of it. Uh, Let us cover the nakedness of our brother with a cloak. Uh, Christian men, but I do believe that there are some uh, Christians who for a period of time have have wandered into sin and and yet have not positively fallen away. There is that uh, black case of David, a a case which has puzzled thousands, uh, certainly for some months. David lived without making a public confession of his sin, but doubtless he had achings of heart, for grace had not ceased its work. There was a spark among the ashes that Nathan stirred up, which showed that David was not dead, or else the match which the prophet applied would not have caught light so readily. And so, beloved, you may have wandered into sin for a time and gone far from God, and yet you are not the character here described concerning whom it is said that it is impossible you should be saved. But wanderer though you be, you are your father's son still, and mercy cries, Repent, repent! Return to your first husband, for then it was better with you than it is now. Return, O wanderer, return. Again, falling away is not even a giving up of profession. Some will say, now, there's so-and-so. He, he used to make a profession of Christianity, and now he denies it. And what is worse, he dares to curse and swear and says that he, he never knew Christ at all. Surely he must be fallen away. My friend, he has fallen. Oh, fallen fearfully and fallen woefully. But I remember a case in Scripture 
of a man who denied his Lord and Master before his own face. You remember his name. He's an old friend of yours, our friend Simon Peter. He denied him with oaths and curses and said, I say to you, I do not know the man. And yet Jesus looked on Simon. Oh, he had fallen. But he had not fallen away. For only two or three days after that, there was Peter at the tomb of his master, running there to meet his Lord and to be one of the first to find him risen. Beloved, you may have even denied Christ by open profession, and yet if you repent... There's mercy for you. Christ has not cast you away. You shall yet repent. You have not fallen away. If you had, I I might not preach to you, for it is impossible for those who have fallen away to be renewed again to repentance. So someone says, what is falling away? Well, there never has been a case of it yet, and therefore I cannot describe it from observation. But I'll tell you what I suppose it is. To fall away would be for the Holy Spirit to entirely go out of a man, for his grace entirely to cease, and not to lie dormant, but to cease to be. For God, who has begun a good work, to leave off doing it entirely, to take his hand completely and entirely away and say, There, man, I have saved you, now I will damn you. That's what falling away is. It's not to sin temporarily. A child may sin against his father and still be alive, but falling away is like cutting the child's head off clean. Not falling merely, for then our father would pick us up, but being dashed down a precipice where we are lost forever. Falling away would involve God's grace changing its living nature, God's immutability becoming variable, God's faithfulness becoming changeable, and God himself being undeified. For all these things, falling away would necessitate. Number three, if a child of God could fall away, and grace could cease in a man's heart, now comes the third question. Paul says, it is impossible for him to be renewed. What did the apostle mean? Our one eminent commentator says he meant that it would be very hard. Oh, it would be very hard indeed for a man who fell away to be saved. But we reply, my dear friend, it does not say anything about it being very hard. It says it is impossible And we like to read our Bibles just as a child would read it. It says it is impossible. And we say that it would be utterly impossible if such a case as is supposed were to happen. Impossible for man and impossible for God. For God has proposed that he never will grant a second salvation to save those whom the first salvation has failed to deliver. Methinks, however, I hear someone say, it seems to me that it is possible for some such to fall away because it says it is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance. Well, uh, my friend, I will grant you your theory for a moment. You're a good Christian this morning. Uh, Let us apply it to yourself and see how you will like it. You have believed in Christ. You've committed your soul to God. 
and you think that in some unlucky hour you may fall entirely away. Mark you, if you come to me and tell me that you have fallen away, how would you like me to say to you, my friend, you are as much damned as the devil in hell, for it is impossible to renew you to repentance. Oh, no, sir, you would say. I'll repent again. I'll join the church. (laughs) Well, that's just the Arminian theory all over. But it's not in God's scripture. If you once fall away, you are as damned as any man who suffers in the gulf forever. And yet, we have heard a man talk about people being converted three, four, five times and regenerated over and over again. I remember a good man. I suppose he was a good man, pointing to a man who was walking along the street and saying, that man has been born again three times, to my certain knowledge. Well, I could mention the name of the individual, but I refrain from doing so. And I believe he will fall again, he said. He is so much addicted to drinking that I do not believe the grace of God will do anything for him unless he becomes a teetotaler. Now, such men cannot read the Bible, because in case their members do positively fall away, here it is stated as a positive fact that it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. But I ask my Arminian friend, does he not believe that as long as there is life, there is hope? Well, yes, he says, while, as the the poet says, while the lamp holds out to burn, the vilest sinner may return. Well, that is not very consistent to say this and in the very next breath to that with which you tell us that there are are some people who fall away and consequently fall into such a condition that they cannot be saved. I want to know how you make these two things fit each other. I want you to to make these two doctrines agree and and until some enterprising individual will, will bring the North Pole and set it on top of the South Pole, I I can't tell you uh, how you will accomplish it. The fact is you are quite right in saying, while there is life, there is hope. But you are wrong in saying that any individual ever did fall into such a condition that it was impossible for him to be saved. We come now to do two things. First, to prove the doctrine that if a Christian fall away, he cannot be saved. And secondly, to improve the doctrine or to to show its use. Number one, I'm going to prove the doctrine that if a Christian fall away, not fall, for you understand how I have explained that, but if a Christian ceases to be a child of God and if grace die out in his heart, he is then beyond the possibility of salvation and it is impossible for him ever to be renewed. Let me show you why. First, It is utterly impossible if you consider the work which has already broken down. When men have built bridges across streams, if they've been built of the strongest material and in the most excellent manner, and yet the foundation has been found so bad that none will stand, what do they say? Why, we've already tried the best which engineering or architecture has taught us. The best has already failed. We know nothing that can exceed what has been tried. 
and we do therefore feel that there remains no possibility of ever bridging that stream or ever running a line of railroad across this bog or this morass, for we've already tried what is acknowledged to be the best scheme. As the Apostle says, these people have once been enlightened. They've had once the influence of the Holy Spirit revealing to them their sin. What now remains to be tried? They've been once convicted. Is there anything superior to conviction? Does the Bible promise that the poor sinner shall have anything over and above the conviction of his sin to make him sensible of it? Is there anything more powerful than the sword of the Spirit that has not pierced the man's heart? Is there anything else which would do it? Here is a man who has been under the hammer of God's law, but that has not broken his heart. Can you find anything stronger? The lamp of God's Spirit has already lit up the caverns of his soul. If that be not sufficient, where will you borrow another? Ask the sun, has he a lamp more bright than the illumination of the Spirit? Ask the stars, have they a light more brilliant than the light of the Holy Ghost? Creation answers no. If that fails, then there's nothing else. These people, moreover, had tasted the heavenly gift. And though they had been pardoned and justified, yet pardoned through Christ and justification were not enough on this supposition to save them. How else can they be saved? God has cast them away. After he has failed in saving them by these, what else can deliver them? Already they've tasted of the heavenly gift. Is there a greater mercy for them? Is there a brighter dress than the robe of Christ's righteousness? Is there a more efficacious bath than that fountain filled with blood? No, no, all the earth echoes no. If the one has failed, what else does there remain? These persons, too, have been partakers of the Holy Ghost. If that fail, what more can we give them? If, my hearer, the Holy Ghost dwells in your soul, and that Holy Spirit does not sanctify you and keep you to the end, what else can be tried? Ask the blasphemer whether he knows a being or, or, or dares to suppose a being superior to the Holy Spirit. Is there a being greater than omnipotence? Is there a might greater than that which dwells in the believer's newborn heart? And if already the Holy Spirit has failed, O oh, heavens, tell us where we can find aught that can excel his might. If that be ineffectual, what next is to be essayed? These people who had tasted the good word of life had loved the doctrines of grace. Those doctrines had entered into their souls and they had fed upon them. What new doctrines? shall be preached to them. Prophet of ages, where will you find another system of divinity? Who shall we have? Shall we raise up Moses from the tomb? Shall we fetch up all the ancient seers and bid them prophesy? If then there's only one doctrine that is true, and if these people have fallen away after receiving that, how can they be saved? Again, these people, according to the text, have had the powers of the world to come. They've had power to conquer sin, power in faith, power in prayer, power of communion. With what greater power shall they be endowed? This has already failed. What next can be done? Oh, you angels, answer. What next? 
What other means remain? What else can avail if already the great things of salvation have been defeated? What else shall now be attempted? He had once been saved, but yet it is supposed that he is lost. How then could he now be saved? Is there a supplementary salvation? Is there something that shall overtop Christ and be a Christ where Jesus is defeated? And then the apostle says that the greatness of their sin which they would incur if they did fall away, would put them beyond the bounds of mercy. Christ died, and by his death he made an atonement for his own murderers. He made an atonement for those sins which crucified him once. But do we read that Christ will ever die for those who crucify him twice? But the apostle tells us that if believers do fall away, they will crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Where then would be an atonement for that? He has died for me. What? Though the sins of all the world were on my shoulders, still they only crucified him once, and and that one crucifixion has taken all those sins away. But if I crucified him again, where would I find pardon? Could heavens, could earth, could Christ himself with his bowels full of love point me to another Christ? Show to me a second Calvary? Give me a second Gethsemane? No. The very guilt itself would put us beyond the pale of hope if we were to fall away. Again, beloved, think what it would necessitate to save such a man. Christ has died for him once, yet he has fallen away and is lost. The Spirit has regenerated him once, and that regenerating work has been of no use. God has given him a new heart. I'm only speaking, of course, on the supposition of the apostle. He has put his law in that heart, yet he has departed from him contrary to the promise that he should not. (laughs) He has made him like a shining light, but he did not shine more and more until the perfect day. He shone only unto blackness. What next? There must be a a second incarnation, a second Calvary, a a second Holy Ghost, a second regeneration, a second justification, although the first was finished and complete. In fact, I know not what. It, It would necessitate the upsetting of the whole kingdom of nature and grace, and it would indeed be a world turned upside down if after the gracious Savior failed, he were to attempt the work again. If you read the 7th and 8th verses, you will see that the apostle calls nature in to his assistance. He says, The earth, which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it, and brings forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh to cursing, whose end it is to be burned. Look! There's a field. The rain comes on it, and it brings forth good fruit. Well, then, there is God's blessing on it. But there is, according to your supposition, another field on which the same rain descends, which the same dew moistens. It's been plowed and harrowed as well as the other, and the husbandman has exercised all of his craft upon it, and yet it is not fertile. Well, if the rain of heaven did not fertilize it, what next? 
Already all the arts of agriculture have been tried. Every implement has been worn out on its surface, and yet it has been to no avail. What next? There remains nothing but that it shall be burned and cursed, given up like the desert of Sahara, and resigned to destruction. So, my hearer, could it be possible that grace could work in you and then not affect your salvation? That the influence of divine grace could come down like rain from heaven and yet return to God void? There could not be any hope for you, for you would be nigh unto cursing, and your end would be to be burned. There's one idea which has occurred to us. It has uh, struck us as a singular thing, that our friends should hold that men can be converted, made into new creatures, and then fall away and be converted again. I'm an old creature by nature. God creates me into a new thing. He makes me a new creature. I cannot go back into an old creature, for I cannot be uncreated. But yet, supposing that new creatureship of mine is not good enough to carry me to heaven, what is to come after that? Must there be something above a new creature? A new, new creature? Really, my friends, we've gone into the country of dreamland. But we were forced to follow our opponents into that region of absurdity, for we do not know how else to deal with them. One thought more. There is nothing in Scripture which teaches us that there is any salvation save the one salvation of Jesus Christ. Nothing that tells us of any other power super-excellent and surpassing the power of the Holy Spirit. These things have already been tried on the man, and yet, according to this supposition... They failed, for he has fallen away. Now, God has never revealed a, a supplementary salvation for men on whom one salvation has had no effect. And until we are pointed to one scripture which declares this, we'll still maintain that the doctrine of the text is this, that if grace be ineffectual, if grace does not keep a man, then there is nothing left but that he must be damned. And what is that but to say, only going a little roundabout, that grace will do it. So that these words, instead of militating against the Calvinistic doctrine of final perseverance, form one of the firmest proofs of it that could be afforded. And now lastly, we come to improve this doctrine. If Christians can fall away, and cease to be Christians, they cannot be renewed again to repentance. But, says one, you, you say they cannot fall away. What's the use of putting this if in? Like a bugbear to frighten children, or like a ghost that can have no existence. My learned friend, who are you that replies against God? If, if God has put it in, he, he put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Let me show you why. First, O Christian, it's put in to keep you from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell him that if he did, 
he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there's a deep cellar where there's a vast amount of fixed air and gas, which would kill anybody who went down. So what does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. So who thinks of going down? (laughs) The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a, a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we will drink it? No. He tells us the consequence, and he is sure we will not do it. And so God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. It is calculated to excite fear, and this holy fear keeps the Christian from falling. If I thought, as the Arminian thinks, that I might fall away and then return again, I should pretty often fall away, for sinful flesh and blood would think it very nice to fall away and be a sinner and go and see the play at the theater or get drunk and then come back to the church and be received again as a dear brother who had fallen away for a little while. No doubt the minister would say, Our brother Charles is a little unstable at times. A little unstable? He does not know anything about grace, for grace engenders a holy caution because we feel that if we were not preserved by divine power, we should perish. We tell our friend to put oil in his lamp that it may continue to burn. Does that imply that it will be allowed to go out? No, God will give him oil to pour into the lamp continually. Like John Bunyan's figure, there was a fire, and he saw a man pouring water upon it. Now, says the preacher, don't you see that fire would go out? That that water is calculated to put it out, and if it does, it will never be lighted again? But God does not permit that. For there is a man behind the wall who is pouring oil on the fire. And, and we have cause for gratitude in the fact that if the oil were not put in by a heavenly hand, we should inevitably be driven to destruction. Take care then, Christian, for this is a caution. Secondly, it is to excite our gratitude. Suppose you say to your little boy, Don't you know, Tommy, if I were not to give you your dinner and your supper, you would die. There's nobody else to give Tommy dinner and supper. What then? The child does not think that you're not going to give him his dinner and supper. He knows you will, and he's grateful to you for them. The chemist tells us that if there were no oxygen mixed with the air, animals would die. Do you suppose that there will be no oxygen and therefore we shall die? No, he only teaches you the great wisdom of God in having mixed the gases in their proper proportions. Uh, Says one of the old astronomers, there's great wisdom in God that he has put the sun exactly at a right distance, not so far away that we should be frozen to death and not so near that we should be scorched. He says, 
If the sun were a million miles nearer to us, we would be scorched to death. Now, does the man suppose that the the sun will be a million miles nearer, and therefore we shall all be scorched to death? (laughs) He says, if the sun were a million miles farther off, we should be frozen to death. Does he mean that that the sun will be a million miles farther off, and therefore we shall be frozen? No, not at all. Yet it is quite a rational way of speaking to show us how grateful we should be to God. So says the apostle. Christian, if you should fall away, you could never be renewed unto repentance. Well, thank your Lord then that he keeps you. The poet says, see a stone that hangs in air, see a spark in ocean live, kept alive with death so near, I to God the glory give. There is a cup of sin which would damn your soul, O Christian. Oh, what grace is that which which holds your arm and will not let you drink it. There you are at this hour like the bird catcher of St. Kilda. You're being drawn to heaven by a single rope. If that hand which holds you let you go, if that rope which grasps you do but break, you are dashed on the rocks of damnation. Lift up your heart to God then and bless him that his arm is not wearied and is never shortened that he cannot save. Lord Kenmure, when he was dying, said to Rutherford, Man, my name is written on Christ's hand, and I see it. That is bold talk, man, but I see it. Then if that be the case, his hand must be severed from his body before my name can be taken from him. And if it is engraven on his heart, his heart must be rent out before they can rend my name out. Hold on then, and trust, believer, You have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth within the veil. The winds are bellowing, the tempests howling. Should the cable slip or your anchor break, you are lost. See those rocks on which myriads are driving, and you are wrecked there if if grace leaves you. See those depths in which the skeletons of sailors sleep, and you are there if that anchor fail you. It would be possible to moor you again if once that anchor broke. For other anchor there is none. I said possible. I meant to say impossible. It would be impossible to moor you again if once that anchor broke. For other anchor there is none. Other salvation there can be none. And if that one fail you, it is impossible that you should ever be saved. Therefore, thank God that you have an anchor They cannot fail. And then loudly sing with the poet, How can I sink with such a prop as my eternal God, who bears the earth's huge pillars up and spreads the heavens abroad? How can I die when Jesus lives, who rose and left the dead? Pardon and grace my soul receives from my exalted head. Oh, wow. Once again, blessed by Charles Spurgeon. I tell you what. I get so excited every time I read one of these. I hope you're being blessed, too. I'd like to hear from you every once in a while. Just write to me at uh, bob.j.faulkner.72 at at gmail.com. By the way, you can access this whole series of written messages online at spurgeongems.com. Don't put an S in the middle there. It's spurgeongems.com, all one word. And uh, 
you'll see hundreds and hundreds of sermons and, and enjoy. Well, anyway, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.